Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, September 27th, the Get It Together edition. I'm Gabriel Roth. I'm an editor at Slate, and I'm the father of Eliza, who is seven, and Leo, who is four. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. I'm a journalist and podcaster in New Hampshire, and I am mom to Henry, who is 17, Teddy, who is 15, and a stepdaughter, Lily, who is 18. And I'm Carvel Wallace, a writer and podcaster in Oakland, California, and I'm the father to Georgia, who is 13, and Ezra, who is 15. Today on our show, we've got a question about kids who cry all the time. Plus, as always, we'll have triumphs and fails, recommendations, and on Slate Plus, we'll take another listener question, this one about just how much teenage PDA is too much. But first, time for triumphs and fails. Rebecca, this week, were you triumphant or were you failumphant? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This isn't a hugely epic fail, but it's a fail nonetheless of routine that I'm uh, really hoping doesn't stick. So for the past... I don't know, like five years or so, I think I've talked about this, uh, that habit that we got from the first vacation we ever went on together, the five of us as a family, we went on a cruise. And the thing that we took away from that, this was like in 2012 or 13, was that every night on this cruise, we had to sit together and have dinner. There's like a time that you have to go and you sit and you're together and you have dinner. And it was really the most fun part of this vacation for us in many ways. Like a lot of like the best stories came from those dinners and like, you know, interacting with like fun people. And it was just very nice. And that set for us a pattern where we have made a deliberate attempt ever since to eat dinner together every day. And the way that we're able to do it is that sometimes it doesn't happen until like nine o'clock at night and we just deal with it if that's the case. Sometimes it's, you know, picking up takeout on the way home, but like, damn it, we're putting that on plates and we are sitting together and we are eating it. Um, And it's been a really kind of wonderful pattern that our family does and that we're kind of known for. A lot of my kids' friends come over because they know that we sit down for dinner and they really like that and that's not something that their families do Uh, and we also try to make it really fun you know we that's kind of when we have like our best conversation Um, but the last few months and this is kind of where we get into like weird fancy problem territory uh, we're doing this renovation in our house and we don't have a dining room we haven't had a dining room table uh, for like three and a half months So we've been trying to do, or at least I tried to do initially, having family dinner on the coffee table in the living room, and it has completely fallen apart. Like, there's nothing more, like, than a tiny, uncomfortable space to wreck a tradition because you realize that, you know, part of the pattern of this whole ritual in our family is that we were sitting somewhere else. Like, we're not sitting in the kitchen in the middle of the mess. We're not sitting on the couch right in front of the TV. We're sitting in this, like, dedicated place which granted was in the same room as the couch and the TV because it's like one room, but that's where we did it. And losing that place for the last couple of months, like we haven't had a dinner with all of us sitting together since, 
I don't I want to say like the beginning of July and it sucks. It like super sucks because I I find myself every night, you know, trying. I'm like, everyone take your plate and come out to this stupid coffee table. And ultimately somebody ends up wandering away and it's actually better when they're gone because then you actually have room for your plate and your fork. So I'm really, really hoping that this isn't permanent. We're able to capture the magic back. Our new table is being delivered Friday. So I'll have to report back at some point, but it's been kind of a disappointment to see this thing just dissipate along with this stupid renovation project that's taken away too long. Uh, that sucks. Um, <laughs> I, I'm to gonna I'm gonna go next because uh, I have a triumph, and it's such a small triumph that um, ending on it would just be a massive, uh, pathetic anticlimax. Um, my triumph is this: I one of my parental responsibilities is I make the school lunches. I um, I I make them lunches and I pack them for the kids in the, in the morning, um, and. I'm the lunches that I make are not like great. Like it's not like the kids are the envy of all of their classmates because of these fantastic fancy special lunches that I pack for them. If you've ever read um, Bread and Jam for Francis, um, you may remember Francis's friend Albert has like a lobster salad sandwich with the crust cut off and celery and a hard-boiled egg and a little salt shaker and and a thermos of tomato soup and all that. And, and my lunches are kind of the opposite of Albert's lunches. They're like a sandwich and a vegetable, chopped up vegetables and a piece of fruit. And like that's what's in their lunch box. Um, and the kids, especially Eliza, has started sort of complaining that like, come on, Dad, these lunches are really just this is not a very high standard of lunch here. And <laughs> I, there's a way in which it's annoying because like, fuck you, I'm making your lunch. But there's a way in which <laughs> there's, there's a way in which I have to accept that her complaint has some merit. Like it's just not these lunches are just not very good. Um and there's a limited range of things that they will eat. Her her gustatory range is now broadening. She's seven and she started to be like, ooh, this is quite spicy. I like it. Or this has some flavor. I, I'm interested in trying that new delicacy or whatever. But um, for several years, there, there's been a very narrow range of sandwiches and and. Like she's sick of me making her a salami sandwich. I don't blame her. So this week... I have made slightly more interesting lunches. That's my triumph. I I packed her some, I made some pasta and, and packed that in a thermos for her and she was happy about that. And then we had, uh, Tally and I made chicken tortilla soup the other night and I packed some of that this morning, some of the leftovers in a thermos for her. And it's, it's not fantastic and it's not a huge like culinary triumph on my part, but it, it, I've elevated the standard of the school lunches that I've been serving by like one millinotch or, or, or whatever uh, metric you use for lunches. So that is my triumph. Well, that's great. Thank you. Not much to say about that. I don't blame you. Uh, <laughs> the thermos, the thermos, though, I, I think the addition of the thermos has changed everything because now sometimes she's getting like warm food, right? And that's at least texturally different. That's right. It's warm. That's right. And and the soup, it, it it's a liquid with pieces of solid floating in it, which is different from two pieces of bread with something in between them. It's just it's just a different format for the lunch, and that might make some difference. Yeah, I have found. Uh, I mean, or at least it seemed at least with my kids that like variety was the main thing because I would do this thing with my kids' lunches is like they would like something. Right. They'd be like, oh, dad, I want, you know, salami and cheese and grapes in my lunch. And I'd be like, cool, salami and cheese and grapes. Got it. And then like a robot, like a machine, I would make the same lunch every day for like a year and a half. Right. And Until then they, they complain. Start complaining. 
And I'd be like, but that's your favorite. And they're like, not every day, dad. You know what I mean? Like, and so it, it occurred to me, like, at a certain point, I, I just couldn't, like, be flexible. It's like, I didn't even want, I mean, mostly it was just because of the logistics of being a parent and not wanting to, like, have to, re, like, create a lunch on top of creating dinner and, cre- you know, just all that stuff you have to create. I was like, I just need this to be simple. It was like the um, the whole thing about Einstein allegedly having, like, 30 of the same suit in his thing closet so he wouldn't have to think about what to wear. I just tried to do that with the lunches, and the kids were not appreciative of my Einstein routine. And once I finally learned that we could shake it up, we could switch it up, I could do this, I could get like six or seven things that they like and then rotate them, then the complaining went down a lot. Now, I think when we first started this podcast, one of the very first episodes I was on, I recommended a book by J.M. Hirsch, the former AP food writer called Beating the Lunchbox Blues. And I loved that book. He's from New Hampshire, so I know him a little bit, but it also was like like a, a, a really like strong selling book for exactly this reason because even though he's a chef and knows how to make all these fancy things he does some really great tricks in that book that can take like a peanut butter and jelly and like he'll do like rolls to make it look like sushi or like just like stuff that doesn't take more time it just the presentation is cooler like getting a bento box to throw in your kid's lunchbox and putting the you know the components in the bento box cubes instead of in the you know in just like a plastic bag and I adopted a bunch of those ideas when my kids were little not literally like I didn't actually make a lot of the food that he made but I did a lot of the presentation <laughs> stuff that he did and it's amazing <laughs> nice. Just the difference that sending them with a different kind of container can just be like super like transformative in terms of their interest and what it is that they're eating. That's a great idea that capitalizes on the fact that there are ways in which children are not very bright. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) It's It's the last remaining weapon we have. Yeah, that's right. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Um, I have, I think, something of a triumph. I mean, I, I called this out as a triumph a couple of weeks ago, and as it's progressed, it seems to be, like, working. So um, the ongoing saga of Ezra entering his 10th grade year and um, just realizing that he has to make up an algebra class that he didn't get a, a passing grade in to get the credits and that he – all this stuff. And he's, like, now – he's like altered his schedule. And so Joe and I – and him went to his counselor with all of the to get everything on paper because there was this running debate about whether or not he was going to get enough credits to graduate and was he on track and he was like I feel like I'm on track and I was like I feel like this is not about a feeling but about numbers and so we had to sit down and like sit with his counselor and we did like work out this plan and we went back and forth over several days about what his credit plan would have to be in order for him to reach graduation and it, 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 it is true that he was he was going to have to make up at least one class. And then there was another class that he passed but didn't get um, an eligible enough grade for UC schools. And so he was going to have to retake that class somehow. And that was a sobering reality for him. And then part of the thing that he proposed was dropping his first period French class and taking French over the summer at community college in which he could get basically two years worth of credits in six weeks as opposed to taking two years worth of French uh, 
at, at eight in the morning and struggling through it, which he was doing. And uh, we all sort of agreed that that was not unreasonable, but that left this open first period. So then um, this big debate, he was like, well, that's great. Then I'll just wake up in a leisurely manner and then I'll walk over to school and I'll take a scooter by the lake and it'll be great and I'll feed the birds and then I'll get, to, you know, I'll arrive to school refreshed and ready to go. And I was like, that's not going to happen. What's going to happen is you're going to wake up at 8.15, stare at YouTube for an hour and a half, and then be late for your second period class. And so um, the, one of the options was to switch his schedule around so that he would move geometry to first and then have this academic support period and blah, 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 so on and so forth. He didn't want to do that. I wanted to do that. His counselor was like, well, why don't we try it this way for a semester? And if he doesn't get it together, then we can do that in the second semester. And because... Um, like I said in the last episode that I that we talked about this, I had made a decision that I was going to just sort of like back up a little bit and let him do stuff and see what happens. And so I made that decision and then I did. And even with this, I said, all right, well, if we just try it, we're going to try it. And uh, And so we've been doing it. And he's been getting up on time and going to school and getting there on time. And he's been initiating conversations with me about his academics. Like it used to be, we'd be talking and I'd be like, so what's up with your biology homework? And, he'd, and the whole mood would change and he would get like depressed and mad and we would start arguing. And now he's bringing up stuff like, oh, dad, like my biology homework, I need to finish this and then I need to finish that and whatever. And I'm like, oh, it's happening. He's taking the reins like this, all this sort of effort that we put into getting him to recognize that this is serious, that was the important part. And then after that, it was about letting him go. Like, it was like leading him to the water of like, no, this actually is for real and this matters. And you're in a place where these actions are going to have consequences. But then after that, like not, I just being unable to make him take the actions I wanted and having to let go. And so he seems to have taken the reins. And then last night he initiated this conversation about college and different requirements. And, you know, if he has to get this, sort of creative science credit for UC. Does that mean he really wants to go to UC? And let's look at, and so we started this whole conversation about different schools and we looked at the different programs and what the academic requirements were. And turns out this school needs three years of foreign language, but this school, you can, you know, you can get a C in your sciences and still be academically eligible. This is stuff that he initiated and was like activating on his own. And it was almost like having a regular kid in my house who was college bound. <laughs> and I was like stunned just watching him do it because I was like, where, where? Because Joe and I have already been like, well, maybe we'll kick him out when he's 30. Like we're already just resigned for the worst case scenario, you know. And it was so crazy to see him like taking this stuff seriously and feeling motivated around it and thinking about it and coming up with strategies and asking questions and Googling things. So fingers crossed so far we have seen at least the um kind of like behavioral change that we hoped to see which is that he would he would sort of self-motivate around this stuff Mm. so that's our tentative triumph for this week and we'll see how it unfolds congratulations i do think a lot of people listening are going to want me to ask you okay so what specifically did you do that made him do that well i so i think that i mean that's sort of the point is that you you can't do anything specific to make a kid do something at this age. And this is a lot of what I sort of advice I have to teen, parents of teenagers that you can't make them do stuff. And people are always like, OK, but how do you make them do stuff, though? And I'm like, but you don't. And they're like, OK. Right. But when you need to make them do stuff, how do you do it? <laughs> and so I think now, having looked at it, that like part of it is like 
you create the circumstances. And I think, I think, I think it all worked together. Actually, I think the intensity that I had at the beginning of the sophomore year, when I was like, "No, this is really serious. I'm kind of like in your grill. I'm looking at everything. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm getting updates in all your grades. Like I'm walking through you with your homework. I'm sitting down with your counselor. You're sitting down with your counselor. We're filling out this credit form, etc." I think all that kind of helped him grasp this the situation. And then I think that then backing up and hearing him when he said, okay, well, let me do it, you know, because that's what he kind of was saying, like, okay, well, let me do it. Like, every time you intervene, it makes me feel like I can't do it or you're not going to let me do it or, like, you don't believe I'm going to do it. And part of me wants to be like, I don't believe you're going to do it. You haven't done it for, like, four years. I have mountains of evidence suggesting you're not going to do it. But I, I don't say that because it's like kids are changing. And... Mm. The thing about kids is that the things you know to be true about them from when they were 12, some of them are not true when they're 15, and some of it is, but you don't know which is which until they show you. And so I think the thing that probably helped a lot was backing up and letting it be his responsibility. Like, showing him that it was important, showing him mathematically, incontrovertibly that it mattered, and then saying, now it's up to you to do something about it. I think giving him that responsibility helped him feel motivated because there is that thing where if you're, you know, if you're always driving, you, then the other person never learned how to drive kind of thing. And so I think that that was a part of it. It's like, it's like, but you have to show them all the dangers of like driving and all the safety stuff. And you have to be really intense about that stuff to let them know what it is. And then after that, you have to take your hands off the wheel and let them have the wheel. And so I think so far, fingers crossed. It's I don't want to count my chickens before they dance in the end zone or whatever the metaphor is. But I feel like that might be the combination that has worked. You said one other thing that I heard you say. You, you kind of went over it quickly, but it's that we're having a really I had I didn't want to bring it up yet as a triumph because like you, I don't know if it's going to stick. Teddy's doing a lot better this year, too, because I have also just been like completely basically taking my hands out of it. I'm just like, it is on you. And the one thing that you said was, well, worst case scenario, we'll kick him out when he's 30 or whatever. (laughs) What you're implying there, too, is that it's not the worst case scenario if he doesn't go to college right away and he needs a soft place to land for a while while he figures his shit out. And I have figured that out, too. Like, you know, when you like have a place and you are willing to sort of understand that every kid is different and not every kid is going to be in honors classes, even if you believe that they are smart enough to be and their IQ test says so and blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. And not every kid is going to be ready to go to college after high school. And it is not actually a very big deal if you have a place to live and you're willing to let them live there. Like, like, it's really okay. It's okay, you know. And I think that there's part of that, too, of like, as parents, we realize, you know what, if this kid doesn't do everything that I know he is capable of doing, if only he'd apply himself in the time frame I want him to do. If you realize there's a backup plan and it's not the worst thing in the world if you have to use that backup plan, like that really helps too because it's also – that's for you, you know? That's like your part of it that like it wouldn't be the worst thing ever, you know? You know, yeah. it's No, I think you're right. It's interesting that you bring that up because I will say that like the other thing that kind of – other sort of like um, moment of clarity that I had around this stuff is I, I – so but the other hard thing about teenagers is that they're half-baked. That's what I always say like they're – you know, they're half-baked. They're not completely baked. And so you look at them and you're like, this 
this thing isn't ready for the world. There's no way they can figure out the stuff that I've had to figure out about how to pay rent and how to balance a thing and how to deal with taxes and all this stuff. And there's no way they're going to, you look at them and they're like, they're never going to be ready. And that instills you with this kind of like natural parental panic. Like my, my offspring is not going to survive. And so one of the normal responses to that panic is to clamp up control, tighten down, force your way into anything and try to manage behavior. But I had this revelation over this past few weeks that, oh, I, he actually is going to figure it out. Like he, he is like he, he's, he's going to figure it out. He's going to reckon like all the ridiculous stuff that he thinks now about how he's just going to like show up in LA and then get famous and how someone's going to hand him a bag of money because he's a genius. And like all the stuff that he thinks, I know it's ridiculous, possibly. And the, I think that I felt like, I think before I felt like I had to disabuse him of these notions so that he understood what it was really about. And now I'm looking at him and I'm going, oh, wait, he's actually going to go out into the world and pick up what the universe is putting down <laughs> and see and put two and two together and figure out how to do it. Because I've seen him do that with other things. I've seen him do that with figuring out how to take the bus around Oakland and how to, like, do this and how to navigate his relationships and how to, you know, he's not doing what I want in my particular schedule, but my schedule is arbitrarily based on my own life, which is what he's been trying to tell me. But I do actually, when I step back from my own fear, I look at him and I go, he'll figure it out. Like, I don't know how he's going to figure it out. I don't know what he's going to figure out, but he's, he's going to figure it out somehow. And that gave me just enough space to be like, okay, so I don't have to like be on him like a shadow at all times because that is damaging. You know, that's the other thing is that that, that interference is damaging. It keeps him from taking control of his own fate. Uh, it it strains our relationship. It keeps him from listening to me because now we're just combatants and we he just needs to be right and I need to be right. It's just all that. And so, again, I think that, like, it's this push-pull. You have to, like, be sort of fervent in some ways and then you have to back up and let them process everything that they're learning. And then you have to come back in a little later and be fervent and hardcore about something. Then you have to back up and let them process what they're learning and integrate it. It takes time to integrate things. And I think that that's there has to be space for them to integrate all the stuff that we're telling them. All right. Um, congratulations. This is great. I hope it continues. <laughs> Me too. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Before we move on, let's do the business. As always, if you have a question that you would like us to answer on the show, you can leave us a message at 424-255-7833 or send us an email at momanddadatslate.com. Also, uh, you should be part of our Facebook group. Go on Facebook and search for Slate Parenting. There is a lot of great discussion there, parents sharing their triumphs, their fails, making recommendations, solving one another's problems. Uh, it's a really good community. Check it out, Slate Parenting on Facebook. On Slate Plus today, we are going to answer a question from a listener. This one is about how much PDA is too much PDA when it comes to teenagers. Um, should be pretty interesting. Uh, if you want to hear that segment and another one like it every week, 
sign up for Slate Plus. It's just $35 for your first year. You get extended ad-free versions of this show and many of our other shows, and you help support this podcast and uh, everything else that we do here at Slate. Uh, if you would like to support us and get those extra benefits, go to slate.com slash Plus and sign up for Slate Plus today. Okay, let's go. All right, time now to uh, hear a question from a listener. Uh, this one came to us via our voicemail number, which is uh, 424-255-7833. Hi, my name is Kristen. I have two kids, one age 7, one age 10. And the 10-year-old's a girl, the boy is, I'm sorry, the 7-year-old is a boy. And they're just extremely, extremely tender-hearted. There's a lot of crying in my house. And... Although I understand that emotions are important, you know, they should be heard. Um, I let them know that I hear them and I love them. It just seems like the crying gets in the way of action. And I have a friend who says when her kids start crying, she tells them to go sit on the step and tell their have it together. Um, I don't know the balance between hearing their feelings them feeling hurt and appreciated, but also just saying, you know, get it together a little bit. Fuck up. Like, you know, life's about action. It's not about sitting there crying. It's about taking action, finding solutions. Um, I've said all of this. I talk about solutions when I start crying. I'm just kind of at my wit's end and just, just tired of it. So any help you can provide would be awesome. Love the show. <laughs> I'm glad you guys think question. these children's pain is funny. <laughs> it is funny. No, no. Well, I think what's funny here is that she's hit on something that a lot of parents would be ashamed to talk about, which is that sometimes the behaviors that your kids have, they're exhausting. And I think what I hear her saying, she didn't use this word, but what I hear is basically she's saying like, this is really boring. This is like... We're mm. not fixing anything. We're not helping. We're not really talking about feelings. We're not really getting anywhere. We are just stuck in this boring ass pattern that is also happens to be very noisy and annoying. <laughs> and <laughs> it's okay. It is so okay, in my opinion, and I'm not going to speak for my fellow podcasters, for you to feel and say those exact things to us. It's also okay for you to, sounds like you're doing all the right things. If your kids are crying, you give them a hug, you tell them how much you love them. I hear your feelings. Your feelings are really strong. They're really trying to get out. Uh, okay, now I've hugged you um, and, you know, 20 more minutes of crying. We're not really going to be able to talk. So it is okay to say, hey, you want to just go sit down over there for a while? And when the crying part's over, we can talk some more. That is okay. That's what I did with my kids. I never told them to, that crying was bad, that they shouldn't cry, that they should stop crying. But I also understood that sometimes crying is just like a pattern that you can't get out of when you're in it. I know I've been there. I mean, I'm an angry crier when I'm having like an argument with somebody. Like it's like a physiological reaction. That's when the tears like start squirting out of my eyes. And people always think that I'm like despondent. I'm like, no, I'm just really mad. But it's a pattern that it's hard to break. And sometimes one of the best ways to break it is to realize that it's boring and not productive. And if you feel supported and loved as a child and you feel like you're being heard and the feelings, the expressions of the feelings, the causes, the potential solutions, all the support is there, 
It is totally okay to be asked, in my opinion, to go sit somewhere for the crying part because there really isn't anything you can do. <laughs> there really, I mean, mm, yeah. it sounds, like I said, if, if you frame the question differently, if you hadn't said that you were doing all these things, providing the framework and the comfort and the support, the answer might be different. But I don't think there's anything wrong with uh, doing that and then letting the crying happen in a room where it's maybe like 10 decibels lower for you and you don't have to just sit there and look at it. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, in in our family, Georgia is kind of a crier and she's both an angry crier and just an exasperated crier. And like we had this thing the other night where I was helping her with her math homework, which has turned into a whole saga. Maybe I'll I'll get you guys up to speed on that next time we do triumphs and fails. But um, we, she was feeling like uh, everything sucks. It's not my fault. My teacher this, my teacher that, blah, blah, blah. I can't do this. I don't understand, blah, blah, blah. And so I was like, well, look, I mean, okay, I understand what you're saying, but you have to make a decision. Are you going to like do this or not? Are you going to figure this out? Because we can sit down and figure this out kind of thing. And she got upset and was crying. And then the crying like turned into a bigger cry because that happens with her. And Ezra wandered into the room because he liked the drama and then the crying went on like, <laughs> and then and then at some point, like I, I tried a whole bunch of look, I know it's hard, but that and then I lost my patience. I was like, look, either you're gonna do it or you're not gonna do it. Like if but if you're gonna do it, you we have to do it because uh, so have a seat at the table. No, no, I don't it's enough. Sit down at the table and we're gonna get through this. Now we're gonna do it. And then and I I like switched tax tactics in the middle, somewhat strategically, and Ezra was like, Wow, Dad, this is such deja vu. This is exactly what it was like when you used to tutor me in math. And I was like, I think you need to be quiet. <laughs> he was like, no, this is what it was like. We would start off, I would get frustrated, and then you would be really nice for a while, and then you would get frustrated. And I was like, Ezra, can you be quiet, please? But I was thinking about that exchange, and he's right. And like, so like, I, like, Rebecca, you said that you didn't tell your kids to stop crying. I have made that mistake, and I look back on it and I regret it. And I think what this caller talks about, especially with the friend, is right. I think the ideal thing that I could never quite accomplish because the crying would frustrate me so I would get in my own feelings about it is to be able to say, like, you know, one of the messages I was had to the kids was, like, all the feelings are okay, but the behaviors are what matter. And so it's okay to feel upset. It's okay to feel sad. It's okay to cry as, as an expression of that. But also that isn't going to help us solve the problem at hand. So we have to figure out a way to do both. So separating out the crying kid from the room or from the space, if you do so lovingly and not punitively, I think is super helpful because it's a way of saying like, um, it's okay that you have this. It's fine. Go tend to this because it, it needs to be tended to. But know that this is not the way through, that the way through is through action. And the other key part of that is that it keeps the parent from losing their shit. Because there's something <laughs> physiological that happens when our children cry. It's really hard for us. And sometimes that our, our response to that is confusion or anger or sadness or grief or impatience or whatever. But I think it's important to acknowledge, that it seems to me, that when your own child is crying, something inside you raises, you know, the, the hackles get raised in some kind of way. And you have to lower the decibel level on that and you have to get some space from that in order to, like, return to a more patient, caring, solution-oriented parenting. Yeah, I think we're, like, this is a, a, a interesting cultural moment in terms of crying and in terms of expressions of emotion. It, it, in terms of, certainly in the culture that, that I'm part of and that maybe the caller is part of, where 
it's as though we're still reacting to the idea of like the the 50s dad who says like stop crying be a man buck up toughen up <laughs> like like we we know that's not good we know you don't want to be good, that Jane. guy yeah right right like i i could be that guy but i know you're not supposed to be that guy that guy sucks nobody wants to be that guy so so when we see the kids crying then quite often like uh, our our main thought process is like okay well i'm definitely not going to be that 50s authoritarian dad guy so i'm definitely not going to tell them to stop crying and i'm definitely not going to smother their feelings or tell them to smother their feelings i'm definitely going to hear their feelings and listen to their feelings and give them the opportunity to express their feelings because we definitely wouldn't want to return to 50s dad culture but there's really no danger i think that my household is going to return to 50s dad culture. Like, I just don't think that's a, a possibility. And and so it's okay maybe to say, yes, it's important to listen to feelings. Obviously, feelings are important. Culturally, we take feelings really seriously. We know feelings are really important. There's no danger that we're going to minimize the importance of feelings and hearing and understanding your feelings. And maybe we need to also think about feelings, especially the, the kind of tumultuous feelings of upset that come out with kids who cry regularly, maybe we need to think of those feelings as an experience, a meaningful experience, but not an experience to be fetishized, an experience to be like observed and noticed and thought about and and managed and dealt with. And and what this mom can do, I think, is is be compassionate to her kids and also help them like get a handle on the fact that obvious that apparently it's difficult for them to manage these feelings. That apparently they like wind up crying uncontrollably a lot. It seems to me that um, she talks about how, like, I try I try telling them, okay, we need to find solutions here, and that just makes them cry more. I feel like solutions is probably the channel by which your exasperation with their crying is coming out. Like when you say we need to find solutions here, maybe they hear you saying you need to stop crying because I'm exasperated, which is a very mm. reasonable feeling for you to be having. Mm -hmm. But it suggests that the solutions <clears throat> trope has sort of uh, the effectiveness of it has the potential effectiveness of it is, is probably gone. Um, so maybe you need to find another way to express that. Um, but um yeah, there's ways of talking to them about the crying that aren't just like, yes, your crying is the good expression of your feelings and what's most important is your ability to express your feelings. Um, see if see if there's a way you can do that and or see if there's a way you can get some distance from it by making them go sit on the steps until they can get their shit together. I think all of that is fine. <laughs> I mean, I I struggled a little bit with the framing of get it together, right? Because that feels like a person has to, I don't know, um, I, I mean, like I, they don't I, I have don't know. it together just, if they're crying. I mean, you can have exactly. it together and still want to cry. You can have it together and still just, be crying. I think that's the thing. And so just go do so the crying I part would, on your own. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think that's the thing. I think it's more like, um, okay, like you have to let this run its course. You're upset. You're crying. I understand you're crying. If let it run its course. And I also think too that like one of the things that is always underestimated when we think about parenting, especially when we're young is the influence of our own behavior. That that's actually a bigger percentage of how kids learn to deal with stuff than almost anything. And I think that a lot of times we get letters from parents that are like, what do I tell my kid? What do I tell my kid? What do I tell my kid? And my thought is always like, well, what you tell your kid, I can attest, is like 10% of what they learn. What you do is like 90% of what they learn. And so, um, you know, there's always, I always have that plug if, you know, if it's like, how do I t tell my kid to deal with their emotions healthily? It's kind of like, are you dealing with your emotions in a healthy way? 
is Ooh. like, unfortunately, that's what it always Probably comes down not. to, I think. <laughs> that's what I, I don't know. I, I don't want to like make any assumptions about this Let's letter writer. Let's ask Ezra, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Never mind. Let's not ask Ezra. All right. Um, wait, wait, wait. One second. I want to go back just a step and I want to make a, uh, I want to mount a small defense of get it together. Because, sure. Because I hear what you guys are saying and and get it together as a phrase. It was probably the wrong phrase for me to use because it's a phrase that in when you say it in real life, it contains an, a certain amount of contempt. And you can and never, that, yeah, you can never lovingly say get it together. Well, <laughs> that I mean, contempt shit together, sweetheart. That contempt, that contempt is obvious. <laughs> is obviously is obviously the problem. Right. Get it I, I think this the mom in this phone call is is reasonably exasperated and and some amount of that exasperation or of that contempt is coming through. And if sure. I were to say, hey, kid, get it together, then it, it right. it's it's coming from the same place. And that's bad. That's wrong. That's the problem. Which we all agree is like reasonable. Very but natural. Also maybe, very natural. Yeah, but it's not going to yeah. help fix the problem. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, but if if you could imagine a, a, a neutral version, a non an uncontemptuous mm-hmm. version of get it together, mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. it's not just for the kid it's not just let it run its course it's not just let these feelings flow through you until they have been entirely exhausted no matter how long that takes there is some amount of active emotional self-management that Mm -hmm. kids need to learn and that you can hopefully help model for them and and help teach them um right and and if there's a way Mm -hmm. of say if there's a compassionate version of get it together then it's something like I think you need to like figure out how to manage these feelings that you're having and not just let them flow. And, and, um, it would be great if, if we as parents, it's great when we as parents can help our kids do that. We can't always help them do it. Um, but that's the goal is to help them learn to, to manage right. these feelings rather than right. just but th- passively. Experience but that's why them. I sort of think that the goal isn't <clears throat> feelings management. It's problem solving. And so like the framing, I think the best framing for that is like, you have these feelings, you're sitting with them, they're like, by all means, but when you're ready to actually address the problem, like work together on the solution to the problem, then then we can do that. I but guess it like, depends right. on whether the crying comes from some practical problem, like I the dog ate my homework or my sister hit me or whatever, or whether it comes from an emotional problem, which I think it well, probably more often does. Well, that's what I was going to say. I mean- we don't have problems. I, so, you know, I've been doing at my workplace, like a bunch of like management trainings. And recently mm-hmm. this whole thing came up about like, when do you talk to people that you have like a serious conflict with? And there is a difference between the time you're supposed to talk to them right away in the moment and the time you're supposed to wait. And the reason you're supposed to wait is because you want to have a conversation that is not you with tears flying out of your eyes, because whether or not, you know, yeah. that's it's 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 no it's no character problem to be an angry crier but it also takes away from the message that you're trying to convey which is very often yeah. not actually about them but about yes. some sort of system that created the conflict so think about it with kids i don't know if you guys have ever seen a christmas story the movie uh which is one of my <laughs> like favorite movies mostly because of this one scene where ralphie gets into a fight on his way home from school and he thinks his father is going to kill him mostly cuz his brother says dad's going to kill ralphie Uh, Mm -hmm. And so his mom, basically, because he's crying and can't stop, sends him to bed and gives him a cold washcloth. And when you watch that movie as a kid, like I always thought those parents were super strict when I watched it as a kid. And when you watch Mm -hmm. it as an adult, you realize those parents are freaking awesome. Because what the mom is doing is basically saying, like, you're super upset. Here, go in this dark room with this cold washcloth 
and and get it out like 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 be upset cry like the crying is reasonable uh and you know and what she realizes is that when he's done crying like she's going to be able to tell him his father is not going to kill him basically what she does is she doesn't really like tell his father the whole story but that's a whole other thing but like i think that even the whole you can say to your kid like when you're done let's talk and you can it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be yeah. like you have to That's be done on a certain time frame. This is your thing. The crying is your thing. It's separate from, we understand that it's caused by something. But if they haven't been hit by a hammer, I mean, yes, then you have to deal with it immediately. If they punch somebody in the face, yes, you deal with it immediately. But like, if they're just upset, let them like be done. I promise then if you don't address the crying when you get to the solution part, the crying will probably lessen and lessen and lessen if you are not addressing like, wow, that was a really long time crying or wow, you cried that time 10 minutes less than the time before. Ignore it. Let them do it on their own. Give them a cold washcloth. And as long as they feel supported and comforted beforehand. And then when they're done, then you can have the conversation just like you would do at work if you were pissed off at somebody you worked yeah. with. You, yeah, you, I would also wait till you were done. That- yeah, I would also argue, too, that there are actually, like, kind of, like, practical solutions to emotional problems, too. Even if it's not just, like, uh, I need to figure out what to do about the fact that my favorite pen fell on the toilet or whatever. I think that there I think that there are practical solutions even to emotional problems. And, I mean, I want to go back to, like, a recommendation that I gave a few months ago, which was the, the emotional toolbox thing, the Berkeley – the thing that they do, do in Berkeley USD that I think they do in some – school districts around the country, like there's 12 tools for dealing with emotions, breathing tool, quiet, safe place tool, listening tool, empathy tool, personal space, et cetera, using your words, throwing things away, taking time, et cetera. These are actually solutions to emotional problems. Like I'm mad that you, that we flipped, a, I remember the time we flipped a coin to decide when I, we, I moved into a department, one room was big, one room was small, and we flipped a coin to decide who was going to get which room, and Ezra got the big room, and Georgia was devastated. And there was no practical solution to that. We couldn't reflip the coin. We couldn't, et cetera, et cetera. Ezra just got the big room and Georgia got the small room. She ended up loving the small room. But that, but that strikes me as like an emotional situation where there was, there's no real solution, but there is something that she could do. But she had to get the crying out first before she could decide whether she wants to say something about it or talk with me about it or throw it away, like make an accurate, an honest decision to throw it away or um, make a decision to do something specific about her room. I think that not just practical problems, but emotional problems do have practical solutions that we can get to once we've like allowed the emotional heightenedness of them to, to have some expression. All right. Um, hope that was helpful. Kristen, um, give us a call back and let us know how it goes. And if you have any questions that you would like us to answer, you can call us at 424-255-7833 or you can email us at slate.com. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. 
Price and coverage match limited by state law. It's time now for the part of the podcast that we like to call Recommendations. Carvel, what are you going to recommend? I'm going to recommend a book called The First Rule of Punk, Always Remember to Be Yourself by Celia Perez. Uh, this is a puffin book. It's a chapter book. I would, I don't know, like maybe fifth grade, et cetera, up, uh, maybe fifth to seventh grade. Maybe you could probably even get to it fourth grade if you're a uh, precocious reader. Uh, it's about a girl whose father grew up as a punk musician and is into it, and she's trying to get into it, and she has to overcome a lot of the stereotypes and kind of like gatekeeping that surrounds that community, especially for girls, and uh, about how she navigates through it. So um, I haven't read the whole book. One of, This was a recommendation from one of my daughter's friends who said that it was like really important to her. Um, it's both the book is part chapter book and part kind of like scrap book with drawings and and um, kind of like um, almost like a zine. So it's like half half uh, narrative, half zine. And it's just this is really cool. So, uh, again, that book is The First Rule of Punk by Celia Perez. Nice. Hmm. Uh, I'm going to recommend a book too. This is a book that um, we got for Eliza recently and she just sort of fell into it. And and now we hear her like reading lines out loud to herself and giggling. Um, it's by the actor Neil Patrick Harris, whom you may remember as Doogie Howser or more likely you remember from his <laughs> various old. adult roles. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, and uh, it's called Magic Misfits. It's the first in a series. It's about a boy who gets drafted into a group of um, street magicians. It involves apparently Neil Patrick Harris has an interest in the, the art of conjuring or whatever um but um if you have a kid who uh has any interest in magic and fantasy then this is a uh, apparently a cool funny exciting um and rollicking adventure by um the man we all remember as um date rapist barney stinson from how i met your mother <laughs> wow i just i'll just say you know neil uh. patrick harris i was just watching the other day that i think it was 2013 when he did the opening to the tony awards and yeah. it was like the most epic show opening of a live award show that as i've ever seen and it's on youtube it is totally worth watching with your kids it's incredible if they're into theater at all check out just look just look up neil patrick harris tony's it's on there it's it's incredible. It's like unbelievable. He really is multi-talented. He really is. He really he's, is. An all, he's an you, all-around entertainer despite some questionable choices. Are you doubling up <laughs> on recommendations right now, Rebecca? Is that what you're doing? No. Nope. We, I, I, see I, was, I was adding on. I have my own mm. singular easy recommendation. <laughs> uh, this was inspired by a question on our Facebook group. Uh, mom, an exasperated mom, was saying she couldn't get her two-year-old to brush their teeth. And I recommended this in the group, so I'm going to recommend it here, too. I work with a mom. My best friend at work has a, an almost two-year-old, and she loves this podcast called Chompers. Uh, it's put out by Gimlet Media. It is designed for smart speakers. So if you have an Alexa somewhere in your house, you can say, Alexa, play Chompers. It is a two-minute podcast designed to be a companion for your kids' teeth brushing. And I've seen it myself, my um, co-worker's tiny little daughter, who's like not even two, when I go over her house in the morning to pick her up, if we have to go to a meeting together, her little kid will say, Alexa, play Chompers. And then she'll stand there very happily <laughs> brushing her teeth for two minutes. I really recommend it. It's very, it was a very clever way for this podcast to be delivered in a way that's usable for kids and um, maybe makes parents' lives a little easier. So that's my recommendation. Nice. 
And that's our show. Um, if you have a question that you would like us to address, you can call us, 424-557-833. You can let us know what you thought of this episode on our Facebook group, which Rebecca mentioned, also a great place to get advice on getting your kids to brush their teeth. Facebook.com slash groups slash Slate Parenting. Just go to Facebook and search for Slate Parenting. It's easier. Our show is produced by Benjamin Frisch. For Carvel Wallace and Rebecca Lavoy. I'm Gabriel Roth. We will see you next week. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.